Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano in, in uh, Charlottesville. How are things there, Frank? They are great, David. Thank you very much. This is a rare Sunday morning recording of the of the podcast, uh, so so we're we're uh, breaking new ground. Break, break. <laughs> That's what we do. Um, <laughs> right, and, and and listeners, my apologies. I'm have I have a head cold, so if I sound a bit weird, that's that's why. Right. Uh, today we're talking about probably the third or fourth most important story coming out of Washington this week, but probably the one that's most interesting, or at least the most amusing, and that is a uh, a flip flop in, in the U.S. Senate, not over the uh, budget or or funding or anything important things like that, but about the dress code. Uh, the story emerged, uh, I guess, last week that uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was going to uh, liberal, uh, liberalize the dress code in part to, uh, uh, appeal to John Fetterman, who is, uh, known for, for not dressing the way that most senators dress. Uh, and the backlash to that, uh, there was a resolution passed by the Senate to create a, a stronger dress code. So we thought we'd talk about politicians and what they wear and, and what all of this means. Frank, did you have a take on this whole kerfuffle this week, uh, about, what uh, should and shouldn't be done in the U.S. Senate in terms of, of apparel? Well, if I can quote um, uh, one of the great presidents we've ever had, Jed Bartlett, um, <laughs> the things we choose to care about. Uh, uh, I mean, this on one hand was quite silly. I will say John Fetterman, I understand he has a particular brand uh, mm. and he's he he probably has trouble buying formal clothes because he's so big he has to get them made. Uh, mm. But but um, John Fetterman dresses like a slob and I'm not sure. I, I, I actually found myself, and perhaps it's because I'm getting older, on the side of the, you know, come on, it's the U.S. Senate, you want to dress appropriately. Um, but but I don't care that much. Uh, but I have some, in thinking about this over the past week and, and in preparation for this this episode, mm. it's very interesting how consistent a lot of the criticisms that were leveled at, at Federman are, and that whenever there's a change in style, and we're, we're in the midst, I think, post-pandemic of a change in style. And I, we might talk about that in the mm. context of, uh, you know, what, what constitutes workwear uh, now. Uh, and so I, we might be in one of those transitional moments. I'm not quite sure shorts and a hoodie is, is that might be a little too casual for the Senate. What do you think? Um, I mean, uh, sorry, sorry, David, before you go, we need to stipulate for listeners that you and I are not exactly people who should be uh, sort of um, chastising anybody for their style choices. Well, I mean, I think he has a style, right? I think it, it, it's, you know, on the one hand, he, so some people he's made look like a slob. I think it's a actually a political choice. Right. Yeah, it's a brand. He is, he is he is signifying things about his politics and his relationship to people who dress the way that he does by dressing that way on the floor of the Senate, right? And so I think there's, you know, I think he's that that it's a choice on his part. I think the Senate and the House have some weird ass rules that don't always make a lot of sense today. Um, like for instance, you can't bring laptops onto the floor of the Senate. You can't bring a cup of coffee or tea on the floor of the Senate. You can drink water only in the House. They also have a rule that you can drink water or milk in the Senate, which is a dumb rule. Um, but you know, they, so they have these rules, and, and some of them are, are are more tradition bound. Some of them are actually enforced, but they're, uh, you know, um, sometimes a bit bit arcane. You know, What's the reasoning? Spittoons, but stuff spittoons on the floor for... of the Senate. Right. right. What's the reasoning for the no laptop rule? I, I think it would be distracting and and not part of decorum, right? And so they've had debates in both the House and the Senate about laptops versus like tablets versus phones and when you're allowed to use them and all these kinds of things. And so there, there's lots of, of rules about decorum that are um, somewhat antiquated. Um, but there you have it. Um so, you know, what, what what they wear on the floor of the Senate. And, and, and Fetterman was doing some interesting things recently where in order to abide by the rules as they stood before this, this liberalization, he would vote from outside the Senate chamber, which you can do. You can just press a button on the, in the cloakroom to vote uh, and doing it that way so that he didn't uh, violate any of the decorum rules. Um, 
So I, mean, I think in some ways it's kind of silly, but I think you know the what you wear matters, right? I think yours they are sending political messages with 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 closing choices. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I think we're seeing this. You know, it's a campaign season right now, mm. and we one of the things, one of the uh, kind of a hardy perennial presidential campaigns, especially in these early stages when when the Republicans, in particular, at this moment, because they have a contested nomination, are all in Iowa pretending to, you know, like being in Iowa, and so they dress <laughs> down. But they but they dress Which down. Lost both of our ways. listeners in Iowa, Frank. Um, <laughs> But they dress down in certain ways, you know, to go yeah. to football games or the Iowa State Fair or whatever. Um, you know, DeSantis got ripped when he appeared with those white boots after a hurricane in Florida. I mean, these these dress choices do have political significance. One thing I would say about Donald Trump, for example, and there was an article in the Financial Times about this about six months ago, I think it might be longer. I can't remember. Um Said, you know, say what you will, you know, Trump often gets mocked for the way he appears because he wears these ill-fitting blue suits and the the overlong red tie, et cetera. And again, people who kind of follow fashion say he looks, you know, he's got a bad look. This piece in the Financial Times made the point, actually, he's got a very recognizable brand, not unlike Fetterman. Mm. And to a certain extent, you know, that that resonates with his the people who like him, you know, that 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 kind of uniform that he wears actually works quite well for him. And that, he, you know, he's kind of crazy like a fox when it comes to his fashion choices, even though one can say, look, you're wealthy enough, although perhaps given the court rulings recently, not as wealthy as he thinks, uh, you know, to, to get a tailor or whatever. But but that his style. This is, yeah. So, so I, I guess what I'm saying is. Politicians like Fetterman, like Trump dressed to uh, not necessarily to impress us but to connote or send certain messages and as i said during a presidential campaign um we see this a lot where 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 there's a sort of studied casualness sure. which works you for some up and not for others on the campaign that's trail. right that's yeah. right and some can do it and some on the going the other way david before we we carry on i should say that uh, i mentioned you know the new the new book about Mitt Romney that that has come out or is coming out now. Um, one of Romney's comments in there is about seeing a senator, and I can't remember which one. It might be Chuck Grassley on the treadmill in the Senate gym, but he was wearing the trousers from his suit and his dress shoes, and <laughs> Romney was sort of saying like, "Why? Who does that?" And so you know, uh, context is everything when it comes to sure. fashion. So if you were dressed like Fetterman usually dresses in the gym, that would be appropriate, of course. Yeah, uh, Romney, by the way, co-sponsored the uh, the new dress code in the Senate. So uh, with, with Joe Manchin, a, a bipartisan um, appeal to not wear hoodies or something. Well, um, and 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 Romney is one of the better dress has always been yes. one of the better dressed senators. I mean, he's always well dressed and his clothes are well fitting. I mean, Romney um, is an appropriate sponsor of that bill, yeah. I think. Yeah, but I, and there's you know there there are lots of politicians today I think who, who use their clothing for particular purposes, whether they're effective or not, like. Uh, Jim Jordan, the representative from Ohio, never wears a suit jacket. And he said, they asked him, like, why don't you wear a suit jacket? Everyone else wears. He says, because he, he wants to, you know, he thinks that it communicates the message that he is ready to work when he doesn't wear a suit jacket. So he never wears a suit jacket. I don't know whether that's an effective technique, but, but clearly there, there's lots of thought goes into this. Sorry, David, can, can we clarify one thing before we, we proceed? I realize this yes. has all been a big wind up, but of course, we are a transatlantic podcast, and you and I notionally live in the United Kingdom, um, and uh, we're, we're going to come a cropper, I suspect, in the course of this conversation to the great transatlantic pants debate. Yes. Uh, so, so are we using? We will be if we say pants. British listeners, feel free to titter, but we will be doing so in the in the U.S. context. That yes. is trousers, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Slacks. Yes. All right. So. In in the revolutionary era, Frank, did how did people think about clothing and politics? What was the intersection there? Uh, well, when it came to if you think about the immediate aftermath of the revolution, so during the early um, the early years of the new government, so the Washington administration, for example, there was a degree of formality that. Um, Washington expected in his administration and which he upheld. Uh, and so Washington had these weekly levies, for example, when he would meet, when he would receive guests. And these were consciously modeled after European court politics and court etiquette. Now, Americans did not dress like Europeans at court. And I'll say a word about that in mm. a second. But there was a 
fair, uh, you know, Washington famously wore sort of a black suit most of the time when he was president. And there are famous portraits of him as president. Crucially, he did not wear his uniform as president because he mm. was a strong believer in the kind of uh, civilian oversight of the military. And so though, although he, he obviously was well known as a general and did own uniforms, he did not wear a uniform as president. Uh, John Adams, during the quasi-war with France, wears a sword. And in part, he's wearing a sword because uh, he thinks that's what's expected of a head of state. Um, and Washington wore a sword. Uh, Jefferson did not wear a sword as president as, as a kind of move towards a uh, nod towards republicanism. Adams, frankly, looked absurd wearing a sword because mm -hmm. he wasn't a military. He didn't have any military background to speak of. He didn't really need the sword. It wasn't as though during the quasi-war with France, the French were about to <laughs> yeah, kind of... I, he wasn't going to He wasn't going to fight the French. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so there are some, there's some weirdness. Uh, to, to, to kind of illustrate what a different world that is from ours and just how fashions change... I would commend people to have a look at the one of the earliest portraits we have of Thomas Jefferson, which is the famous uh, Mather Brown portrait, which um, you've you've probably seen, David. It's the one that looks the least like Jefferson because he's got his hair done up. This it was done while he was an American ambassador in in France or an American diplomat in France. Um, he's got his hair done up. He's got his hair powdered. It's quite high. He doesn't quite have a pompadour, but, you know, he, his hair is clearly done. He's wearing what appears to us to be quite a fancy ruffled shirt and a black suit. And this is often held up as, oh, yeah, you know, this is Jefferson dressed for the court at Versailles. And he is dressed for the court at Versailles. And he looks like a kind of, you know, somebody who went on their junior year abroad and decided to dress like a European. Right. Uh, <laughs> However, that's actually not what's happening there, uh, because if you look, and I, I owe a lot my understanding of this portrait in particular to my former student, Gay Wilson, who's, who, who um, is a historian here at Monticello, in fact, uh, and an expert in, in clothing history. And Gay has argued persuasively about that portrait. Actually, that's a report. That's a Republican portrait. So if you look over Jefferson's shoulder in that portrait, there's there's a the goddess Liberty. There's this the mm. goddess Liberty is standing over his shoulder with a carrying a, a staff with a Liberty cap on it. But the sim, the relative simplicity. So to us, that clothing looks incredibly fancy. But by the standards of the court of Versailles, and you only have to look at portraits of Louis the Sixteenth, right? By the standards of the court of Versailles, he's deliberately dressing down. Yeah. And, you know, so the simplicity of his black frock coat, which looks fancy to us in the white ruffled shirt, again, to our eyes, that looks incredibly fancy. To theirs, it's essentially he's like Castro showing up at the UN wearing fatigues. And that, that, <laughs> exactly that, right. that's that's and that's the message that he's intending to send. Or, or Zelensky showing up in a, in a you know, camo shirt, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. That's right. And and. and um, the frock coat's really important for this because we're going to talk about frock coats, I think. Mm. I, I certainly have something to say sure. about the 19th century. So we associate the frock coat with being incredibly fancy. But if you look at the history of the frock coat in the 18th century, the frock coat is actually a British, particularly English fashion that's seen originally as kind of country wear in contrast to um, the more formal wear that one sees at court in London or Versailles. Ironically, the frock coat becomes the formal wear for men, particularly politicians, mm. during the 19th century. But its own origins are actually as a kind of turn away from formality. So what we see sure. is fashion changes. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. I mean, one of the, thing, one of the things that came up to me in, 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 in doing my research for this episode was there were lots of descriptions of what George Washington wore to his inauguration because he... he wore, you know, what to us would look like a, in depictions of it are, are, you know, he's wearing a very well-made suit it's made of uh, it's a brown suit made but made of american cloth that yeah it's an american suit. suit american suit made in hartford connecticut um you know and it, he had this sort of you know ruffled shirt and and knee uh length trousers and, and waistcoat and, and you know fancy buckle shoes and all these kinds of things so it was a, a an aristocratic outfit but it was very very distinctly different from what a monarch wears Right or somebody in 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 a European court, and so how do you signal 
you know, but all of these things politically, and I think, you know, George Washington was, was paying very close attention and it sounds like Jefferson and lots of the other uh, you know, founding fathers were doing the same thing. That's right. And famously a decade or so later or a decade and a half later, uh, Jefferson. So Jefferson consciously see when he, as president seeks to present himself as a kind of Republican alternative to the kind of formality of the Federalists. So even Washington's uh, you know, we can we can unpack Washington and Adams's dress and say, well, actually, they're going for Republican simplicity while also uh, seeking to achieve a degree of formality. Mm. Jefferson takes a step further towards Republicanism, if you will, with a small R. And so famously, he also wears a very simple suit to his inauguration. It's not he's described as be having plain dress. It's not clear what he actually wears. Uh, but he also he walks to his inauguration in Washington. He doesn't ride. Um, so he walks from his boarding house to take the oath of office. Uh, and famously in 1803, he greets Anthony Mary, who's the new U.S. ambassador, U.K. ambassador in, in Washington. And Mary is coming to present his credentials and believes this is a formal diplomatic meeting. And so he's wearing his diplomatic uniform. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying you know, it's an actual uniform he's got to wear to present his credentials. And as he put it, Jefferson greeted him in a state of undress now he wasn't actually undressed <laughs> what he was, <laughs> that would be was great. He, he was casually dressed mm. so he was not wearing formal wear uh he, so so and so he mary described him as being in down at the heel slippers and so he was wearing slippers he wasn't wearing formal shoes and um and, and looking slovenly but this you know jefferson knew what he was doing and this was interpreted by Mary, among others, as a rebuke and a deliberate insult to the United Kingdom, to Great Britain. And it was. Uh, you know, Jefferson knew what he was doing, and he was deliberately sending a message to Mary, basically saying, yeah, you're not that special. Um, and this spread. The, the Federalist opposition was more pro-British than the Jefferson administration was. And the Federalist press picked this up and presented Jefferson as appearing wearing a kind of uh, you know, in his pajamas and things like this, which w- wasn't true, but that was the kind of caricature that spread. And for a time, there was a real kind of diplomatic kerfuffle about this because of the the alleged insult that that um, Jefferson had given to Anthony Mary by, you know, the way he presented himself. And so clothing and politics, you know, there's a long, long history of this um, mm. in the United States. And this was, I guess it would be the equivalent of, let's suppose John Fetterman were president and was greeting the UK ambassador in a hoodie and and his gym shorts. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, yeah. You know, thinking about when political fashions change, I think the, the the big turning point in the 19th century is Andrew Jackson and the sort of Jacksonian period. I think there's a real shift towards a more democratic, lower uh, case D, democratic you know, mode of dressing, trying to appeal to what People wore even more so than um, Jefferson and Washington and those guys. So if you look at what Andrew Jackson, for instance, wore at his inaugural, he wears a black suit. He has a plain white shirt, none of this sort of fancy ruffled stuff that that Washington and Jefferson are wearing. He's got a black tie on. He's got instead of the 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 knee length trousers, he's got full-length trousers. He doesn't have the silk stockings and other kinds of things that the uh, the founders did. And I think he was signaling by that, um, you know, a very different way of, of presenting oneself. And that actually kind of becomes the uniform for most of the 19th century uh, uh, for politicians to wear a black suit, a, you know, a white shirt, uh, a top hat, um, but but you know a, a a sort of standard uniform. To be sure, there were a number of people who dressed uh, exceptionally. Um, Charles Sumner, the famous Republican from Massachusetts, liked to wear very colorful uh, trousers. Um, and but uh, you know obviously that didn't always work out so well for him because um, people didn't always like his trousers and his politics. Um, but there's an interesting moment in, in the Jacksonian period in thinking about rules for what people wear in Congress that I think is fascinating. And that's the hat rule, which is one of the few rules they actually voted on 
uh, usually these these rules are so much more traditional and and informal in terms of their their origins. But, but there were actually lengthy debates about the hat rule in in Congress that culminates in a ban on hats in 1837, uh, which I found fascinating because they have. This gets introduced actually multiple times in the years before about the banning hats, and they finally do in 1837. That's a ban that has been in place uh, until very recently. Um, and the origin behind the hat ban essentially was that parliamentarians in London wore hats. That was standard and required in Parliament in London for complicated reasons going back to um, the Reformation. And so American politicians wore hats. Um, but then, then it, there was a movement saying, look, we shouldn't wear hats because the British wear hats because we're not British. Uh, but other people said, look, we have nowhere to put our hats when we come to work. And therefore, we should wear our hats. Uh, the senators didn't have offices. They had no places. To, uh, they didn't have a hat rack in the uh, Senate chamber. So they or the House chamber, too. Uh, so they they. People had lengthy speeches about why they should be allowed to wear their hats. Um, but it gets banned in, in, in 1837. They're not allowed to wear a hat on that floor of the house. And that's a hat uh, ban that largely nobody paid much attention to until uh, the 20th century, where you start to find women congressmen asking to wear hats on the floor of the house. Uh so uh, Bella Abzug uh, often wore hats during her election campaign, uh, but when she tries to wear her hat on the floor of the United States House, the doorkeeper says, no, you're not allowed to come in here with a hat. Um, there was a congresswoman uh, from Florida in the early part of uh, 2010 who also tried to wear a hat. She was known for wearing hats and was told, no, you're not allowed to wear a hat. The hat ban was only overturned um, a couple of years ago, and that was for religious headwear, because there are Muslim women in in the in the house who are required to cover their heads, and so uh, they overturned the hat ban um, that had been in place since 1837 uh, as a consequence, or at least for very specific reasons. Um, has do we know if anybody else is wearing hats now? I mean, I haven't I haven't followed this that closely in terms well, of the contemporary uh, uh, House and Senate. No, I think it's just uh, Ilan Omar, um, and I'm trying to remember the other Muslim woman, uh, congresswoman's name. Um, but uh, they, they, I think, as far as I know, are the only one who are wearing hats. Um, and I think it's is specifically a religious exemption. So I think you, if you're Jewish, you could wear a head covering and, and other kinds of things. So I don't think you wear a Texas cowboy hat, although that would be pretty exciting. Um, I mean, the the... the... History of politicians and hats, of course, is very interesting because mm. in terms of the wider culture, it's widely seen that the turning point in the 20th century uh, for men uh, giving up hats in the United States, which I think is a sad development, actually, uh, was when Kennedy was inaugurated. And, you know, it was very cold at Kennedy's inauguration, but Kennedy did not like hats and did not wear hats. And the sort of if you look at pictures of the first half of the 20th century and the first well, 60 years of the 20th century, American men are wearing hats of all kinds, but wearing lots of hats. And then they they stop in the second half of the 20th century to a large extent. And it's usually credited to the style influence of, Pre of President Kennedy. Yeah, I think, you know, the top hat was, was ubiquitous. Um, thinking about interesting hats in, in, in political fashion, I think we need to talk about the coonskin cap, which, um, <laughs> you know, Davy Crockett was famous for wearing a coonskin cap, and that what became uh, identified with him, uh, you know, as a political figure that, that and it signified something about his place as a as a frontiersman and as an outdoors doorsy kind of guy. Um, the coonskin cap obviously has a revival at various points in time, but the most interesting political case I could find uh, was Estes uh, Kefauver, the Tennessee uh, politician. Um, who was accused of being a puppet for communists. And, he, and the person who accused him said, you know, he's a he's a puppet. You can imagine like a little raccoon puppet for communists. He said, well, I'm not a puppet for communists, but I will wear a raccoon hat. And he wore a raccoon hat when he uh, ran for the Senate in 1848. And that became his signature, wearing a raccoon hat. 1948. Oh, sorry. 
I'm always in the 19th century in my head. So yeah, 1948. Uh, and he wore it in, in lots of his campaigns, but obviously not on the floor of the Senate because you can't wear a hat there. Um, uh, so so there's some interesting hat you know, uh, discourse there. Um, yeah. Even prior to that, of course, famously, when Benjamin Franklin was representing the, the new United States of Versailles, he wore a beaver hat. Franklin never wore beaver hats before or after, but he did so because he was he was pandering to French sensibilities of what they expected an American to be. And again, it's 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 of a piece with Jefferson's frock coat hmm. and so on of this kind of revolutionaries dressing in a certain way. So so hats are an important way that people have made made uh, statements yeah. over the course of American history. Sorry, I don't want to take us. No, back, no, but... I know. I think that that's an important point. Um, you know, and the other sort of hat discourse that they spend a lot of time talking about is the liberty cap, which is not actually a cap people were wearing, but people used a lot in art. You mentioned it in the the Jefferson painting, the, the Phrygian cap, this cap yep. that is supposed to signal liberty um, that became very popular in the aftermath of the revolution is still, you still see it pop up occasionally. Uh, the The Statue of Liberty, the, the Statue of, of Columbia of Liberty on the on the top roof of the U.S. Capitol on the dome was originally supposed to have a Phrygian cap until uh, uh, Jefferson Davis, who was at that point Secretary of, of War, uh, nixed it and said, no, no Phrygian cap for 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 uh, Lady Liberty on the Capitol. Um, one thing strikes me is that the people whose clothing gets critiqued the most, uh, besides those people wear hoodies and shorts um, are women and African-Americans, you know, in some ways, because the rules are either written for men or written for white men. And one thing I've found in looking at, I've been spending a lot of time recently looking at, at media coverage of black congressmen in the, in the late 19th century during reconstruction and afterwards. And they spend a huge, the journalists spend a huge amount of time focusing on what they're wearing. And, you know, the black congressmen are in this very strange sort of catch-22. If they dress too nicely, they are being critiqued for dressing too nicely. If they don't dress nicely enough, or if their suits don't fit well, then they are seen as being uncivilized and not fit for uh, gracing the halls of Congress. Um, and these are critiques that are not levied at, 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 at white congresspeople. Um, but, but the... Uh, sort of policing of what what African Americans uh, was were wearing was was you know very important to the sort of uh, broader policing of them as as political actors, and the same thing you find true of of women as you get more and more women in in Congress. Um, the headline in the Washington Post that when when Janine Rankin became the first woman elected to Congress was Congresswoman Congresswoman Rankin. Real girl likes nice dresses and tidy hair, right? Like the, 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 that signifying that, low oh, okay, maybe she's been elected to Congress, but the fact that she, she dresses a particular way that's acceptable to us is what actually matters. Um, and so I think, you know, some of the people who are pushing back against these sort of political norms and dress codes, whether they're formal or informal, are often people who are, you know, politically on the outside anyway and are push, pushing back yeah i mean the the uh relaxation if that's the right word the, the change in the women's dress code hmm. um is relatively recent so it's it's in 1993 that um uh, senator carol mosley braun who's an african-american was an african-american senator from illinois um and i think lisa murkowski from from alaska if i if memory serves um wore trousers, wore pantsuits, and and sort of um, pushed for uh, the allowance of pantsuits uh, or the recognition that pantsuits were kind of mm. business wear for women. Uh, it was as late as 1993 that the, the Senate... Um, um, allowed women to wear wear trousers and 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 or as I say pantsuits for to, as as appropriate business wear. So um, one of the things that strikes me about this whole debate, and we saw a little bit about it this week uh, or last week when they were talking about this new the new dress code, is these are institutions dominated by men. They're dominated by men who are generally of a certain social class, and they are decidedly uncomfortable um or or ill equipped <laughs> to, yes uh talk about what, what what's appropriate uh 
clothing for women in the workplace. Um, I think that's quite clear. And and so they, they they've 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 um, uh, they don't know what to do with that. And and I think it's interesting. Speaking of people, uh, politicians who use their dress to convey a certain um, message. I mean, uh, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona is very effective at that, but dresses in such a way that sometimes upsets people. She's seen a little bit like John Fetterman as, as sort of um, disrupting norms. Uh, mm. and, and I think she she does that, you know, she's she's doing that deliberately. Uh, but they also, but she tends to be marginalized because of that, I think maybe rather than, I, mean, I think there is a different response to her than there has been to Fetterman. Uh, I, that may I have to do also with some of her politics, which are yeah, you know, yeah, um, in a different sort of vein, you know. But there have been all these debates about it, both in the House and Senate about whether women uh, can uh, have bare arms or shoulders uh, on the floor, um, and, and and or open-toed shoes. There was a debate about that at one point, uh, and it's intriguing the way I guess that that, that or it's frustrating and angering that that, that women's Clothing gets critiqued in ways maybe that men usually don't. I think Fetterman is the exception, but you don't find many exceptions of men's clothing getting critiqued in the in the way that women's do. I guess with the the great exception, of course, of Obama's tan suit, uh, which for forty eight hours was the biggest news story in the country for reasons I still don't understand. Because uh, I thought he actually looked quite good in that suit, but um, well, I think that was part of the reason. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Um. Uh, so, 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 David, in the late 19th century, uh, there is a transatlantic moment we need to consider, I think, before we move mm. on, which is uh, because it's the transition to the suit. We, again, think of the suit as as um, kind of the norm in business attire and political attire. Well, in the 19th century, it was frock coats. And as, as I said about Jefferson mm. uh, century, with reference to a century before, the frock coat itself was seen as a kind of casual um, evolution uh, of men's dress. Uh, but as you suggested in, in the, uh, when you talked about the debate over the hat ban, um, mm. the norm for politicians uh, on both sides of the Atlantic was to wear a frock coat. Uh, and and, um, and as you said in, in your earlier comment, in Britain, certainly in parliament, men were expected to wear top hats. In 1892, Keir Hardy, who's one of the founders of the of the Labour Party here in the well, there in the United Kingdom, uh, shows up in Parliament wearing a tweed suit, what was then called a lounge suit, with the, mm. the kind of modern equivalent of the suit. And instead of a top hat, he wore a deerstalker like uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, he's often presented as wearing a flat cap, which was a kind of sign of working class solidarity. But he wore a deerstalker. But this was. To a certain extent, caused as much of a fuss as Fetterman's um, as Fetterman's dress. However, what Keir Hardy did? Did I say Keir Starmer or Keir Hardy? Keir Starmer is the current leader of the Labour Party. Keir, I meant Keir Hardy. If I you if did I, say Keir Hardy, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I, I froze for a moment there. Keir Hardy, you know, initiated a change where men by the 20th century are wearing suits the front there's a frock there's a frock coat suit overlap for a couple of decades but it marks a change and we see this again on both sides of the atlantic so the suit itself the business suit is itself seen as a more if you will casual alternative to what had come before so sure. we may i i'm not sure that senators uh that legislators are going to start wearing hoodies and shorts yeah, because uh, we can talk about the history of shorts because there's a whole controversy over shorts throughout the 20th century. But 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 I do think we could be in a transitional moment, especially post covid, um, maybe away from the suit. We're seeing, you know, the uh, yeah, people wear dress sneakers. There was a controversy, a few controversies, an overstatement. There were it was commentary about a month or two back when somebody appeared in the Oval Office wearing what are now called dress sneakers, you know, these all birds yes. that people wear. Um, neckties seem to be optional in a lot of, um, in a lot of um, environments. Now, a lot of business environments where previously they, they would have been required. Um, and so I wonder if we're in a little bit of a transitional moment. Yeah. I, I well, it's, it's intriguing because in some ways I think what happens in Congress is falling behind actually 
the 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 fashion transition that is happening in analogous professions. I mean, if thinking about what lawyers wear, what bankers wear, a lot of them, you know, gave up, stopped having sort of the tie and the the formal two or three piece suit as being the default clothes. They gave up on that twenty years ago. Um, even in you know fancy New York law firms and stuff, they the what had been uh, the standard uniform is now now dead uh, for all intents and purposes. And, and, and you know, thinking about the industries that that shaped the economy, the tech industry in particular, nobody wears a suit. And if you showed up wearing a suit, you'd be mocked for wearing a suit, not for not wearing a suit. Um, and so, so Congress seems to be, and politicians more broadly, seems to be lagging that uh, fashion indicator. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, with an, a crucial exception, though, I, I I spoke to a lawyer the other night who works for the Justice Department, a young guy, oh. and I, I made this argument and I, I asked him about this with this episode in mind. Mm. And he, he complicated it. He said, no, no, no. He said in law firms, sure. He said law firms are actually a bit more formal than, say, the tech tech and finance sure. firms. Uh, he said, but if you're appearing in court, you have to wear a tie. You still yeah. have to wear a tie. If you're appearing in court, you said now what happens now is a lot of people put on ties to go to court. They're not wearing yes. court ties regularly. Uh, he also said, uh, and I I asked him that he was with his partner as well, and she had opinions about this because they're both Washingtonians. Um, because, you know, it seemed to me that, you know, we saw at the end of Obama's administration, especially after he left office, he was appearing with the likes of uh, Emmanuel Macron and, and Justin Trudeau. And they'd look really they'd wear smart suits and no ties. Mm -hmm. And I thought, OK, th this is what's happening. And, and the tie, the necktie is dying. Um, and I still think that's probably true in the long in the broader term, a uh, longer term. Um, but this guy, this couple I spoke to, which is a you know, make of it what you will. It's it's not a huge sample size. They said, oh, no, no, there's a huge difference in Washington in what people wear. You can tell people's party, what party they're from. If you go to a bar, they said, Republicans are always in ties and the women are always in heels and mm -hmm. the Democrats are not. And that there's a, there's a kind of partisan split on this very issue and how people dress socially in Washington, D.C. Now, I leave it to listeners if they have a corrective to that, but this is this they 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 were quite certain that the, this is kind of breaking down along partisan lines. They also said, don't kid yourself for a minute. Congress is incredibly formally. John Fetterman's staff are all wearing jackets and ties. Yeah. Well, the rules but, actually but, say that that, that that staffers have to wear those things. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so um, they have a more formal dress code than, than in some ways than the members do. Um, it's intriguing to me thinking about recent fashion because you do have these trends towards more informality, but you do see among a certain segment uh, of of politicians a greater actually uniformity about what they're wearing. The number of people who are wearing solid red or blue ties, vis-a-vis -vis more colorful things, and very either very light blue or or white shirts and blue suits that has become for a much bigger segment of the population of uh, the political political classes um, than, than it ever has been. So I'm, I'm, we're seeing actually this weird bifurcation where you have more congressmen looking more like each other than you did, say, in the 60s and 70s. Um, but you also have these outliers who look distinctly different. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Well, do you think those are because they've become very much uniform? So, you know, Republicans wear red ties thanks to, mm -hmm. well, they're identified, uh, it confounds, you know, in the UK where red and blue are the opposite, the opposite parties. Sure. But, but but because Republicans are associated with red and Democrats with blue and Trump wears that red tie, red tie yeah. it's a way of signaling a sort of, it's a uniform effectively, isn't it? I, I think it is, yes. Um, although I think I, the transition to me, it seemed like it happened maybe under George W. Bush to being that right. kind of, and I think it may have something to do with television and it may have to do with what shows up well um, on, on C-SPAN or, or on, you know, those you know clips that get shown in the, in the news every night. Uh, but I'm still not quite sure about that. Uh, interesting. I don't know. Who do you think is, are, are some, are some political figures from the past or the present who are particularly well-dressed? 
Oh, I think Barack Obama is very well dressed. I think Barack Obama uh, dresses really, really well. Um, again, we're the we're the wrong people to make these these judgments. I suspect Nancy Pelosi dresses really well, mm. um, and and uh, clearly, you know, is seeking to convey a certain message with the way she dresses. Um, Mitt Romney dresses well, I think. Um, historically, I mean, again, John Kennedy dressed very well. FDR dressed well. Um, what do you think? I think Joe Biden actually dresses very well. Yeah. Yep. I, I think he both is both in terms of his formal wear or his, you know, official politician garb and his, and his uh, casual wear. I mean, I think all politicians need to have three or four wardrobes, depending on what yep. they're doing. And he seems to always sort of fit the bill. Um, you know, going back historically, I think you're right. Kennedy obviously obviously gets targeted as being someone who was a, was a very good dresser. I think, he was a very attractive man and dressing well is, is, is easier when you look good uh, to start off with. Um, but I think of who, who I pick as particularly bad dressers. I think Abraham Lincoln was not a good dresser. Um, for all of his, his virtues, I think that was, that was not one of them. Um, he was known for being somewhat uh, slovenly in his appearance. Um was that deliberate or, you know, in other words, was he was he doing a Fetterman thing kind of thing or was he just he didn't care? I think both of those are plausible interpretations, right? I think, you know, in some ways he is trying to signal himself as being a, a working class guy, a man from very humble background, a person of the frontier uh, by the way that he dressed and acted. Um, but how much of that was an affectation and how much of that was just the product of who he was, I, that that's probably hard to say you know for all the books have been written on lincoln i don't think there's actually been a, a detailed study of his fashion choices i think that may have to be a retirement project for for somebody um because i couldn't quite run uh, but i'm very intriguing to see 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 what uh the next fashion choices are in congress because i think it's, it is intriguing when but what what we expect politicians to wear and why people think it matters um, I mean, I think I, I think the tie is going to be the, the new frontier, whether we retain neckties or not. Yes. I, I really do think that's going to be an interesting uh, development. Do you have strong in the next feelings about decades. this one way or the other? Um, yeah, I think a suit without a tie, if you have a nice shirt, is fine okay. and, and it's more comfortable. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I think the necktie might hold on longer than I think. I mean, uh um, you know, finding out that they're required in court still and and that there's a part now that there's a partisan aspect of this, if, if indeed what these uh, people I encountered on Friday are true, said is true. And I have no reason to doubt them. Mm. Right. These are young people who live in Washington, one of whom works for the government, uh, that the, like, if this, like everything else, becomes a partisan issue and therefore a front in the culture war, I suspect we probably won't see movement on this, but it seems mm -hmm. to me that in general, and you mentioned uh, fine attack and finance, mm -hmm. um, that you know neckties are becoming optional. So, so I wonder if that. It seems to me that's a change that's probably coming, but it might be slower to come to Congress than or to government than elsewhere. I think that's right. You know, and and these things aren't necessarily always linear in, in their progression because I think we've seen if you look at the twentieth century periods with uh, or more formal and periods that were less formal you know i think the 70s were less formal and the 80s became more so and has to do with politics and the economy and all the kinds of factors so we will see what we're wearing in the future listeners if you have ideas for what frank and i should wear in the future on a podcast we will we'll do that but of course it's an audio media so you have no idea what we're in anyway yeah i will say i was at a i, I was at a conference last week and I encountered a, a good friend of, of longstanding uh, who did graduate work in British history and knows Britain well. He, he himself is American. And we were at a conference and he commented on what he saw. And he's quite right about this is the contrast between the way British academics and American academics dress. So British academics tend, I think, to either be incredibly informal Mm. or extremely formal so it's it's kind of you look like john fetterman or you're wearing a suit um i mean i exaggerate slightly for effect but i think that's true whereas american academics tend to be 
slightly more formal, but it's kind of academic formal. So it's chinos in a shirt and a jacket, maybe a tie, whereas British academics wear a t-shirt to work, for example, male academics. Um, okay. and, and, and we were contract, whereas in Britain, once you wear a suit, you're like your management, right? Right. <laughs> but but British, I get, you'll see people that, whereas you'll very rarely see suits on an American campus. You'll see lots of jackets and ties, but not necessarily suits. So we were we were unpacking the significance of this. Uh, oh, and for, for I, I think that it's not transatlantic differences that are the most pronounced. I think it's field differences that are the most pronounced. Oh, right. Interesting. You know, I think you know, your labor historians and your environmental historians on the one hand are going to address very different than your business historians. Um, and, and what going to conferences in, in those disciplines, the, the, the regular, the de-rigor apparel is very, very different. You know, so when, if you go to the Southern Historical Association annual meeting, the Southern, you will see more people wearing bow ties than in any other conference you will find. If you go to an environmental history conference, nobody's wearing a bow tie unless they're doing the oddly ironically or something um but those are those are sub-disciplines what about between disciplines like archaeologists versus historians versus oh physicists? yeah 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 no i think th those differences are also quite pronounced right i think people who teach in a business school you know a lot of them are wearing suits um i think people who are teaching in a lab science are going to wear very different clothes than uh than we might so uh no i think there there, there are profound differences both geographically and and in terms of discipline and in terms of like subfields. So I think you would, have... you, would you agree with the supposition though, that Amer British academics are more informal than American academics? I think that's true. I think American academics are more all over the board. Um, okay. Because I think, you know, thinking about what people wear to teach in, you know, I know people who wear, where, you know, at the places where they teach a, a ties default or, or something sort of adjacent to a ties default. And I know people who teach in t-shirts and flip-flops, and that's the default where they teach. Uh, so I think it's much more about campus culture than it is about uh, anything else. And, and there's, I think, greater diversity of those in the, the U.S. than there is in the U.K. Interesting. Okay. All right. I, I, I will ponder that. The other yes. thing that we didn't talk about that we could, because your sanctuary is the best for it, is politicians' facial hair. We'll have to leave that for another episode. But uh, Yeah, that, that's, facial that's hair a whole different realm of fashion, but we'll get to that. Right. <laughs> I guess we'll do last drops and I guess I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I want to endorse a, a new book came out, uh, I guess, earlier this week uh, by uh, Shira Lurie, uh, The American Liberty Poll, uh, which uh, we featured her. She We talked to her on an episode a long time ago. I want to say it was before the pandemic, I think. So it was like four years ago, four or five years ago. Um, it was at a meeting, speaking of academic conferences, it was at a Shear meeting, I think, when we talked to her. Um, and, and she was telling us about telling us about the research that went into this book uh, that was published uh, earlier this week. So the American Liberty Poll published uh, by the the University of Virginia Press, uh, and I think you had something to do with this, Frank. Well, I, I am very. I am the editor. I am one of the editors of the series in which it appears, the Revolutionary Age series, which I edit with my friends. Uh, Patrick Griffin, Elijah Gould, and Krista Dierksheide uh, for the University of Virginia Press. And we're very, we're thrilled that Shira's book has appeared. And yes, we interviewed her, if memory serves, at the 2019 Shira Conference in Boston. Okay, that sounds right. Yes. So okay. so long-time listeners can go back to listen to that episode, or if you've been having this on your to-read list since then, uh, it's out now. Get a copy for your, you and your friends and what have you. Raise the Liberty Bowl. So, David, my yeah, my last drop is I want to announce, and, and you may not be aware of this, but uh, the University of Florida has just appointed somebody to its Richard J. Milbauer chair in Southern history. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is one of the it's a very prestigious chair and it's a high profile chair. And some guy amazingly from the UK, <laughs> David. Silver, Silkamat, <laughs> David yes. Silkamat yeah, has that, been that, appointed that's... to the to the Milbauer Chair at the University of Florida. Congratulations, David! Oh, this well, is a huge, huge achievement, and you will be leaving the University of Edinburgh next summer. Do you I want will to reflect? Be, yes. I, do you want to reflect on that? Oh, uh, well, uh, sure. So, um, you know, I've been now at Edinburgh for for over ten years. Just uh, this, I guess, is my tenth year here, eleventh uh, year. Um, 
And this has been a really wonderful place for me. I've made some great friends. It's been a wonderful city. It's been good for my family. But uh, this particular chair at the, the University of Florida uh, has a very distinguished lineage. Um, I think I'll be the third person to hold the chair. The first two were Bertram White Brown, who wrote extensively on, on Southern Honor and other topics. Uh, and then more recently, Bill Link, uh, who is a historian of, of, of many topics in Southern history, Southern progressivism, secession in Virginia, other other topics, and, and um, it's a chair that comes with the tremendous resources and and prestige and other kinds of things. So it was too good an opportunity to let pass, uh, but uh, so so it, it was has, it's with uh, some joy and sadness that I'm leaving Edinburgh to 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 take on this thing in uh, in Florida in uh, in in August. So, well, congratulations, David. It's you. very, very well, richly deserved. And we're all, uh, as your friend, I'm pleased for you. As your colleague, I'm saddened by this, but I think it's going to be great for you. And um, I'm really, really pleased. Yes. And, you know, people don't realize that Gainesville is really the Edinburgh of Florida. Well, you know, one thing, I, I'm going to need a new wardrobe. So my fashion discussion here <laughs> is relevant because I think the clothes one wears uh, in Gainesville in, in all time of the year is going to be quite different than what wears in, in Edinburgh. So, uh, you need to start dressing like Mark Twain and wear, just wear a white linen suit all the time. Uh, that's, you know, what, 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 one of the things that, that Trent Lott did in the 90s was he tried to introduce Seersucker Thursday, where he tried to get people to wear Seersucker. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I'll go that far. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I will have to, to reconsider what I teach in and, uh, my, my wardrobe more broadly. Um, so, well, congratulations, yeah, no, David. Thank you. Uh, but uh, yeah, until next week, Frank, cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.